that video ends with a remarkable statement. Jesus is the Son of God. It is an extraordinary statement. In Matthew 27, verse 54, it's a Roman centurion. It's not one of the Jews who may have known some of the scriptures. It's not one of Jesus' own disciples. A Roman centurion, after hearing Jesus' words on the cross, after seeing the manner in which Jesus died, upon witnessing the spectacular phenomenon that took place around his death, he weighed the evidence and he came to the conclusion, Jesus is the Son of God. And it's actually ironic that a Roman centurion would say that. Because it tells us in John 19, verse 7, we're told there that it is precisely because Jesus himself claimed to be the Son of God that he was executed. And now one of the very ones who executed him is making the claim that he is the Son of God. And what makes it even more remarkable than that is that this Roman centurion who came to that conclusion did it without the benefit of the resurrection. For at that moment, Jesus had not been raised yet. It tells us in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Folks, everything about Jesus testifies that he is the son of God. Everything. His supernatural birth, his sinless life, the countless miracles, his teaching, the the sacrificial atoning death on the cross. Everything testifies that Jesus is the Son of God, but none of that is nearly as loud, does not roar with the intensity as does the resurrection. It is because he was raised from the dead that we can boldly, with full confidence, claim this morning, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So today is Easter. And we celebrate Easter. And so that there's no misunderstanding this morning about what Easter is. Easter is not some springtime celebration. It's not some celebration that winter is over and that flowers are beginning to bloom. It is not the celebration that the temperatures are getting warmer and that white people are beginning to change color. I'm not sure if that's racist, but we'll just keep going. Folks, this is the celebration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
This is why we gather on this day. This is why what we're doing. We, re, we rejoice in the resurrection because it definit, definitively declares to us that Jesus is the Son of God. And so that there may be, not be any misunderstanding about what that means. It does not mean that Jesus was procreated. It does not mean that Jesus was created. It does not mean that God was in heaven and had a mate and procured some offspring of some sort. That is not what we're saying this morning. That Jesus is the Son of God means very precisely that Jesus is God. The Son of God is of God, meaning of the same essence, of the same nature, of the same substance, of the same being as God. Let me explain that a little bit. In the Bible, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus, is referred to as the son of perdition. Fancy word for destruction. Judas is the son of destruction. Well, no one thinks when they see that, well, is there a person called destruction? And then destruction had a baby, and that is Judas. No. We understand that he is of destruction in the sense that he manifests destruction. He's a manifestation of it. He is of perdition. In the same way, Jesus is of God. He is a manifestation on earth of God Almighty. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it reveals to us very clearly. It says, he, referring to Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature, of God. There you see it. Jesus is God. He is the eternal Son of God. He is God the Son who manifested God on earth. What is his name? Emmanuel, which means God with us. What we are celebrating this morning and every day as followers of Jesus is that Jesus is in fact God. So, I got to ask, is this what you're celebrating today? Is this why you're here at 455 West Depot Street on a Sunday morning? Is this what you claim with your heart and with your soul and with your mind? Do you claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God himself? Folks, I, I have a prayer for each and every person under this roof this morning and that we would all be like that Roman centurion who would look upon the evidence, weigh it, and come to the conclusion, surely, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. So, you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to have a little bit of fun this morning because I'm the pastor and I can. Thank you. I'm actually going to spend the time that we have left this morning, at least a portion of it, making a case, giving some evidence. I, I want us to know why we can claim that Jesus Christ is God himself. So, sound good? Why not? To begin, we got to get in the Wayback Machine. 
we're going to go all the way to the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a way of saying God created everything. It's, it's, it's a way of saying God created the universe and everything in it, right? Well, there are some that would claim that that's not true, that there may not be a God and that the universe has always been here. There's a claim that the universe and everything in it is eternal. But the evidence would show that the universe and everything in it is not eternal. The evidence actually would show that there was a definitive beginning to everything. So I want to get all science-y for the, for the geeks in the crowd right now. Physics. Physics. This isn't some pastor in Harnett County. I'm talking about physics. Tells us it has shown that the universe is headed toward what is called heat death. All right? That's a very scary thing. If you happen to live long enough, if it were to ever happen, all right? The laws of thermodynamics, not the theories of thermodynamics, the laws of thermodynamics have clearly shown and proven that there is a finite amount of energy in the universe. It's limited. There's only a certain amount of heat and light in the universe. No more is being added to the universe. We know this, right? No more is being added. There is a limited amount of it, and given enough time, it will all get exhausted. Given enough time, there will be a point where this limited amount of energy in the universe is going to get completely used up, and it will be absolute cold and absolute dark. That's a terrifying thought, like if you were to live long enough, if it were ever to happen. Well, the fact that heat death in the universe has not taken place actually proves that the universe had a beginning, an actual starting point. Because if the universe and everything, if the universe were itself eternal and energy finite, the energy that's already in the universe would have already extinguished itself. It would have already been used up. So I'm going to illustrate it this way. I've got an hourglass right here. So just imagine that the, universe, that the, the hourglass itself is the universe. And so for those who would claim that the universe is eternal, let's say that this hourglass is the universe and that it is eternal, meaning it has always, always existed. You could go an infinite amount of time backwards, and there's the universe, okay? But we know right? The sand in here is energy, light and heat. We know that that's limited, all right? Well, we know that if you had ever turned the universe and started it an eternity ago, whatever's in the hourglass would have already run out because that which is limited cannot last as long as that which is limitless. Finite cannot last as long as that which is infinite. So if you go an infinite amount of time backwards, if you go an eternity backwards, and that's when it got flipped upside down, whatever little bit happened to be in there would have already run out a long, long, long time ago. We would be living in absolute cold and darkness by now. It couldn't be any other way. So it is just clear like that, this little country Harnett County preacher read enough science to know that that is how it is. The universe cannot be eternal. We'd be living in darkness. So to, to, you got you to take this a little bit further because you gotta, you got to consider if the universe is not eternal and whatever heat and light and energy is in the universe is not eternal, 
it had to have had a starting point. Well, what is more reasonable? That the universe spontaneously self-created itself out of nothing or that there is a supreme being who created it all? Which is more reasonable? Now, in the science world, and unfortunately, it does appear that most of those in the academic science fields and so forth tend to be at least on the atheistic side, if not maybe agnostic, to give them a little bit of credit, right? But they are lost. The ones that they have proven have shown the universe had to have had a starting point. But instead of going to what is the simplest, easiest conclusion that even a child would get to, well, clearly God must have done it. They said, oh, no, there must be a multiverse, that somehow there's this bu- cosmic bubble of worlds and universes, and it just kind of exploded and created this one. Well, okay, fine. If that's the case, show me the evidence of which there is none. And number two, well, then what created that one? Well, then another one and another one. You just go infinitely backward. It's, it basically is irrational, illogical, unreasonable. It's basically just punting. I'm just going to keep punting because I don't want to get to the notion that maybe there is a God who created the universe that I live in because maybe then I'm going to be held accountable. Maybe he wants something of me. Maybe he wants something from me. Maybe there's something. So I'd rather not think about that. So I just assume that it was just always been here somehow. But what does the evidence show us? Just think of this logically. Uh, I'm going to go to what is called the argument from cause. Something always causes something, right? Like, nothing's here just kind of randomly. We don't go outside and see a bird flying and say, oh, look at that. That bird just happened to manifest itself out of nothing right then. Like, no one, unless you're insane, right? No one in their right mind just thinks that that bird just spontaneously appeared in the sky flying. No one. What do you think? Well, that mama bird, oh, that bird had a mama bird and a daddy bird. And those birds had a mama bird, and a daddy bird, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth, until you get to the point where, where did the first mama bird and daddy bird come from? So then you're, you're left with, you can't go back infinitely. There's no such thing as infinite regress is what it's referred to. There had to be a first cause that got it going. So what, what is more reasonable it just all kind of happened out of nowhere, randomly, time and pressure and heat? Or there was a supreme God in intelligence, a God who is wise, who created everything out of nothing. Like even the evidence points to God, let alone just common sense and reason. So if the preponderance of evidence is that there is a God, a creator who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, time and space, matter and energy, things animate and things inanimate, if there is a God who created everything, which is the case, then you got to consider this fact. In this universe that has been created is a collection of books that we call the Bible. And this Bible, this collection of books, claims inside of it that it is the Word of God. Right? Inside of this, there is a claim that this is from the God who created the universe that we inhabit. So we got to answer or ask and answer the question Is this book the work of man? Or does it have the quality of being the word of God? 
What, what is more reasonable? Ah, it's just a bunch of dudes who wrote it? Or this is God's word? So a little bit of evidence. And if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say this. This book, this Bible, is actually not one book. It's a collection of 66 books written by 40 different men, all from different walks of life. Kings, priests, shepherds, fishermen, okay? Written in three original languages on two continents over the course of 1,500 years. And not a word from cover to cover contradicts. I cannot go a week without contradicting myself. Forty writers over 1,500 years, three languages, two continents, and not a word contradicts. How do you account for that? Does it have the quality of it being the very word of God? So like this week, a lot of us will be a little conflicted because Thursday night comes out Avengers Endgame. I'm conflicted because I'm excited to see it, but it's kind of sad because it kind of ends in error. So, okay, fine. You're going to be like that? I'm the only dork that likes Marvel up here, right? (laughs) For 12 years, Marvel has been putting on this incredible cinematic universe with these different characters and their own storylines all converging. It's a cool thing, and the last one comes out this week. It's like, I want to see it, and I don't because it's sad. And here's the thing. There are, there's a group, a very small group that's in charge of that project. They're, they're doing all the research. There's the comic books. They're like in meetings. They've been in meetings for two decades trying to put this thing together. And you know what? I've caught inconsistencies throughout. Oh, come on! Thor can stand and can withstand the brunt of an entire star. Two movies ago, Loki stabbed him and cut him. Like, it makes no sense. <laughs> How in the world could Loki cut him? He took like an Andrew Harnett County blade. I cut you. <laughs> Two movies later, he literally is taking on the whole power of a son. That's inconsistent. So Marvel, with all of their millions of dollars in this incredible effort, contradict themselves in these little movies. Meanwhile, you've got a book of 40 books, written, 66 books, 40 people from different walks of life, over 1,500 years in three languages on two different continents, and not a single word contradicts. Does this have the quality of being the word of God? And if you're not convinced, how about this? In the Old Testament, there is a plethora of prophecies about the Messiah. There is an incredible amount of foretelling, specific foretelling about who this Messiah would be, who he would be, what he would be like, things that would happen in his life. And I'm talking specific. So let me just name eight of them. Ready? Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, written 700 B.C., okay? Prophesied that the Messiah would be born not in Israel, but in Bethlehem. It's too easy to say the Messiah will be born in Israel. Well, of course, he's coming through the people of Israel. That would have been too convenient. 
You know, Bethlehem is a little tiny podunk town. Coats makes Bethlehem look like a metropolis. I should have said that the other way around. I know, I just caught myself. All right, so no fun later. Bethlehem makes Coast look like a metropolis. Little tiny Bethlehem, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7, 14, also 700 years before Jesus was born, foretold that he would be born of a virgin. That's calling a shot right there, isn't it? Like, it's one thing, so he'll be born of a woman. Well, of course. Like, what else would it be? Here is a virgin. Are you kidding me? Well, then that's, that's kind of limiting who maybe this person might be. Jeremiah 23, 5, written 600 years before Jesus, prophesied there that the Messiah would be of the lineage of King David. Not just any figure. He had to be a descendant of David himself. Zechariah 9, 9. 500 years before Jesus foretold that he would appear riding on a donkey, not an Arabian stallion, a donkey. Zechariah 11:13, 13, 500 years before Jesus was born, foretold that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, not 20, not 40, 30 pieces, not gold, silver. Psalm 22, verse 16, written 1,000 years before Jesus was born, foretold that the Messiah would have his hands and his feet pierced. Psalm 22, 18, 1,000 years before Jesus prophesied that people would cast lots for his garments. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, 500 years before Jesus was born, foretold that a messenger would be sent ahead of Jesus, a forerunner. And you know that all eight of those prophecies were all fulfilled in the life of Jesus. All of them. Born in Bethlehem, check. Born of a virgin, check. Of the lineage of David, both Mary and his adopted father David were of the lineage of King David, check. Last week, Brent preached the last week in Jesus' life, entering Jerusalem, what did he write in on? A donkey. Donkey. Y'all, like it's. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for what? 30 pieces of silver. Hands and feet pierced. Crucified. Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garments. And John the Baptist was the forerunner just before Jesus telling everybody, preparing the way. All eight specific prophecies verified to have been written hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus, all fulfilled in the person of Christ. And some really, really smart people did the math. They figured out the odds just to statistical probabilities of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one individual. It's this. It's 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros afterwards. So let me illustrate what this looks like. You take the entire state of Texas, you fill it, you cover it to a depth of two feet with silver dollars. 
you mark one of those silver dollars. You randomly throw it somewhere in Texas. Then you blindfold an atheist, and it has to be an atheist just for fun. Like you blindfold an atheist, and you ask him, I want you to walk around Texas, and you reach down, and you pick that one silver dollar on your first try. Statistically, that is not just improbable. Statistically, that is impossible. The chances are so limited. That's only for eight prophecies. There are over 300 in the Old Testament referring to Jesus. So what about 48 of them? What is the statistical, I can't say that word. What's the statistical chances of 48 coming true in the life of one person? You know what? Silver dollars are too big for this illustration. You actually now have to use electrons. I don't mean an atom. I mean an electron. Okay, so here's what it looks like. It is 10 to the 157th power. That is a one with 157 zeros afterwards. Okay, so before I was using the silver dollars, now you got to use electrons. So you take that many electrons, and you put them side by side, and you make a ball, a ball of electrons. Do you know how big that ball of electrons is? Its radius is 6 billion light years. The radius is 6 billion light years. Then you take one of those electrons, you mark it, you take that same atheist and you blindfold him, you throw him into there and it says, pick the one marked electron, and he picks it on his first try. Not possible. And here's the thing. For all 300-plus prophecies to come true, which they did in Jesus, in the life of one person, this universe, our known universe, is not big enough to contain the ball of electrons. So I ask you, does the Scriptures have the quality of being the Word of God? How else do you explain that? You can't. Clearly, we can believe that the Bible is God's word, and the Bible says that God created the universe. And then all the other evidence shows that as well. So here we have Scripture, and in this Scripture, which is clearly the word of God, there is this character named Jesus who himself claims, I am the Son of God. And then the same Scriptures say that it is the resurrection that validates that claim. Well, just think of this. If Jesus is not God, then that means that God is the greatest liar of all. Because then he purposely let us be deceived. It means that he purposely raised someone up from the dead just to trick us into thinking that that character is God when he's not. What would God have to gain? If God created the whole universe and he's that powerful and magnificent, what would he have to gain from fooling us? Nothing. Nothing at all. It's illogical to even begin to go down that path. What is logical then, if the universe was created by God, and the creator gave us his word, and his word tells us that Jesus is God, then therefore, transit property, y'all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God himself. So we were left with a final question. Why would God then come into this world? Love. Love. Mercy. Grace. 
He came because he loved us in order to rescue us from darkness. So this past week, me and the family, we had this unique opportunity to get away. We went to the mountains. And while we were there, we went and visited Linville Caverns. I don't know if anyone here has gone or visited Linville Caverns. It is really cool. It is a subterranean world. It is this narrow cave structure that runs deep inside of a mountain. It really is something out of Lord of the Rings. Like at any moment, Gollum is just going to jump out at you. And, and there's only one way in, the only one way out. There's no natural light in this, these caverns, these little tunnels, these little caves. No natural light. And so they rig lights throughout so you can make your way around. Well, at one point in the tour, the, the guide says, hey, we're, uh, we're going to turn off the lights. We want you to experience absolute darkness. Like, All right. And they shut off the lights. And it could have been 30 seconds. It felt a lot longer than that. But, like, it's so dark, your eyes don't adjust. There's nothing for your eyes to adjust to. It is bleak, blackness, complete. It could be no more blacker. It's dark. It's as black as it gets. And so you're in there for 30 seconds, 45 seconds. I mean, like, I, I know they're going to cut the lights on, but could you hurry up? You start feeling a little antsy about it. We had our little kids, and, I mean, they were braver, I think, than I what might have been inside. I was trying to be cool, right? But, like, I'm like, no, nah, okay, I, I get it. It's dark. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the tour guide, um, she shared something. said that if you spend enough time in that kind of absolute darkness, you actually go insane. So when I got back, I started looking that up. Like, is that for real? Oh, it's for real. They've done research on this. They've thrown people into complete darkness for a long time to see what happens. Because some people are cruel that way. What, what ha- like, you, you lose your ability to sleep. Like, you might sleep 10 minutes for one day, not sleep for three more, and then sleep for three more days. It's like it's really crazy what happens to, to a person. You, you, it wreaks havoc with every part of our human condition, our mind, our hearts, and everywhere. Throws off your senses completely throws off your senses, causes hallucinations. It causes, this was the crazy one, it causes emotions to spiral out of control. So then most of us are living in complete darkness, apparently. No, like, like you go from like complete, like, like giddy, the next second is complete fear, the very next second you're enraged, the very next second is something else. Like there's no in between. Like you go from one extreme to the other constantly while you're seeing monsters and angels and flowers and all kinds of stuff. You lose grasp of reality. You lose every grip that you have upon what is real. Well, the thing is, we were all born into a spiritual cavern. We were all born into a dark, dark cavern. And the evidence is our spiritual insanity. Sin is spiritual insanity. Sex trafficking, y'all, is spiritual insanity. Racism, bigotry is spiritual insanity. Speaking an ill word to your spouse is spiritual insanity. Speaking words that tear down your children 
and demean them is spiritual insanity. Speaking words of division in a church, gossip, is spiritual insanity. Speaking words that are cruel or mean or offensive to our neighbors, it's spiritual insanity. Every act of greed and selfishness is spiritual insanity. Narcissism is spiritual insanity. Look at me. Aren't I great? Aren't I wonderful? I want everyone to see me, to know me. It's spiritual insanity. That, that, that level of self-absorptedness. All immorality is sin, and none of it makes sense. Pornography makes no sense. No sense. The people who do it, the people who watch, it makes no sense. Addictions make no sense. This is going to hurt me. It's going to destroy me. I want to do it anyway. It, it's insane. It makes no sense. Holding spite toward a person, resentment toward a person, a grudge toward a person, that's insane. What good does that do to you or that person? None. Folks, it, sin is complete and total spiritual insanity. We, we do it, though it hurts us and it hurts the people around us. We do it, though it harms us and it harms the people around us. We do it anyway because we are insane. And why are we insane? Because we're born into darkness, and in darkness you cannot see. And in darkness your senses are screwed up. In darkness you don't know which way is right, which way to go. Confused, bewildered, disoriented. And so we justify evil and we justify sin and we justify all sorts of behavior because, folks, we were born into darkness. That's the bad news. We're born in a spiritual cavern and there is nothing any of us can do about it. But then there's good news. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. And so he came into this world to shine light into our lives, but he could not shine that light unless he first himself stepped into the darkness. So there's a night where Jesus is praying in a garden of Gethsemane. And on that night, this angry mob comes to him and apprehends him, seizes him, and they take him to an illegal trial under the cover of darkness. It's at night. It's illegal. And there they, they convict him of wrongdoing. Though he had never said or done anything wrong, they convict him. And with that, torture begins. These individuals begin to spit in his face and slap him in the face. Folks, mobs don't throw punches. Mobs give beatings. And so instead of revering the Son of God, this mob beats and mocks Jesus. So very clearly, Jesus descended into darkness. He descended into the darkness of sin, of our sin. Then the order is given for him to be scourged, to be whipped with what is referred to as a flagrum. 
So he's beaten, he's whipped, he's tortured, and it's so devastating that Isaiah 52 verse 14 says, His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. You know what that verse tells us? That when they were done beating him and whipping him, he didn't even look human. Jesus was made to look on the outside the way we look on the inside. He was made to look inhuman by our inhumanity. Very clearly, Jesus descended into death. He, he descended into darkness, into the darkness of our sin. Then Jesus is crucified where nails pierce his wrists and pierce his feet. And he's hung up on this cross. Folks, it is excruciating pain. That's where we get the word excruciating from. It means from the cross. They had to invent a word for the pain endured by someone on a cross. It is excruciating. And not just excruciating, it is complete and total humiliation because he was crucified naked. And not like the picture show, like way up in the sky. No, just a few inches off the ground so he could be face to face with the people who were spitting at him and yelling at him. And for three hours, he hung there just in agonizing breath, just trying to make it another minute, another breath. When all of a sudden, this strange and ominous darkness blanketed the earth. A strange darkness, Scripture tells us, covered the earth and for three hours for three hours it tells us in scripture that he became our sin he didn't just take our sin he became our sin in darkness he became us he became us fully not just through his birth but now by the cross becoming our sin and on that cross, for those three hours, he dealt with the full weight of God's righteous anger and judgment and wrath on account of our sin. And he paid the price for our sin during those three hours, and he died our death. Clearly, Jesus descended into darkness, into the darkness of our sin. His bruised and bloody, lifeless body is taken off of the cross and it's wrapped in these linen cloths and put in the darkness of a grave. Clearly, Jesus descended into the darkness of sin. But, but, it was in the midst of a cavern of death in the darkest place, light shined. Light shined. John verse, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Has not overcome it. The grave could not hold Jesus. Darkness could not contain Jesus. He stepped into the darkness of our sin, but he came high-stepping out the other side. Don't tell me Jesus didn't strut out of that cave. 
champion and victor. And that, folks, is why we can claim with full assurance that Jesus is God. For only God can raise himself out of death. Only God can shine in darkness. Only God. And I want to clarify something real quick for the record. The tomb is not empty. The tomb is not empty. Stop saying that the tomb is empty. Jesus' body isn't in it, but it is not empty. In fact, it is full, and it is full to capacity. It tells us that when the disciples went to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away, and inside of it were the very linen cloths that his body was wrapped in. Those cloths represent our sin, our guilt, our shame, our fear, our doubt, our iniquities, our transgressions, all the ugliness of our life. Jesus left it in the tomb just like he left those linen cloths. And now there is no room, no room for anyone who places their faith in Jesus. There is no room in darkness. There's no room in death. There's no room in the grave for anyone who trusts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God. Amen. Folks, this is historical fact, and this is spiritual truth. Jesus died on the cross, and on the third day, he rose again. He is our champion. He is our victor. He is our risen Lord. He is the Lord Almighty who loves us and who stepped into darkness to rescue us out of darkness and transfer us into his kingdom of light. Do you believe that claim? Have you placed your faith in the claim that Jesus Christ is God, that he paid for your sin, and that in him there's forgiveness and new life and hope? And just so that you know, to claim that Jesus is the Son of God is to claim his claim over your life. In other words, it means that you belong to him, that your life is in his hands, that you now live as a faithful follower of Jesus, to claim that Jesus is the Son of God is to know that darkness has no claim over you. Folks, this is what we celebrate on Easter. This is what we celebrate every day as followers of Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, and He is our living hope. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Lord, so much for your truth and for your grace, for your love. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the cross and for that tomb that no longer houses his body. Lord, we give you praise for the resurrection. Lord, we praise you because it does declare that you, Jesus, are the son of the living God, that you are God Almighty, our creator, our deliverer. Thank you that by your grace, through faith and your work upon that cross and through the power of the resurrection, we can be saved, we can be forgiven of our sins, we can enter into a new life. Thank you, Lord, that you've made it easy for us. And Lord, I pray for everyone under this roof that we would humble ourselves to this wonderful truth that we would give ourselves into your hands, that we would give our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls to you, 
Lord, that we would confess to you right now, Lord, I have been running from you. I have been rejecting the truth. I have been turning from you. I've been going the wrong way. I've been trying it my way, Lord. It doesn't work. I know that. And so, Lord, I come humbly before you, and I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you would save me. But I pray that we would all be a people who have done that in the past, and if not, that we would do it right now, if need be, for the first time. That we would repent of sin and of a lifestyle, Lord, of immorality, of that spiritual insanity. And that we would come to you for you to heal us and restore us and to shine light into our soul. I pray, Lord, that we would all be a people who would know Jesus, who is our living hope. And with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, the praise team is going to lead us in the closing song. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if anyone wants to come forward and just kneel in, in worship to the Lord, if anyone needs any prayers, I'll be up here. If anyone needs to take that first step of faith, we invite you to do that. Let today not pass without knowing that we've made that decision. For today is the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.